This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for March 2nd, 2015. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast. I'm Drew Messenger-Michaels. Thanks, as always, for being here. So uh, I spoke with Erin Robinson of Ivy Games during the release week for her new game, Gravity Ghost, and mea culpa for not getting the interview up right then. Uh, As has happened before with the timeline of this here podcast, I had to travel, had to go to Germany for work, and uh, as you can probably hear in my voice, it was a long week and I'm tired, but I'm back now and excited to share this conversation with you. Uh, The conversation does mostly uh, speak for itself, stand on its own, but there is one kind of weird rabbit hole we went down in the middle that I want to point out and uh, add a little context to. Um, I brought up my niece uh, during the conversation, and that is a person you've heard me uh, refer to on this podcast before. That would be Lucio's daughter. Uh, I consider him a brother, so I consider his daughter my niece, my goddaughter, what have you. But she is, uh, besides being uh, all around great and and, uh, featured in the podcast in the sense that you hear her say one word and play the smallest measurable amount of harmonica in the theme song, she is also my barometer for what kids these days, uh, or at least the smartest among them, are into. She comes up in this episode in the context of Minecraft, of which she is a very big fan. Uh, Aaron and I get to talking about the function of trigger or shoulder buttons in Gravity Ghost, and uh, those buttons are interesting. I think to, to a lot of people my age, uh, or roughly my age, they represent triggers. You know, they're, they're mechanistic. They maybe are haptic metaphors for firing a gun, uh, primarily. And I don't think that is necessarily what they mean to someone who has grown up on Minecraft and used those buttons for digging, using, grasping, uh, etc., as much as, if not way more than, they've used it to shoot stuff, use them to shoot stuff, right? You do have a bow in Minecraft, but even then it's like pulling back the string. Um, I mentioned in this uh, this episode that one of my most crystal memories of first using, uh, you know, the, the Z button, for example, on the N64 is, you know, making Mario crouch, or then uh, making Link focus on something in Ocarina of Time. Uh, It's more about attention or space or closeness or or, or closing distances than about necessarily shooting a thing. Uh, It occurred to me after the interview that also the the SNES controller uh, had shoulder buttons, and and, uh, in Super Mario World that would sort of, you know, move the camera left or right. Again, it would be about bending space. And this is all supremely half-baked, but I think interesting. Um, and I just did want to provide the context of who it is I'm talking about, uh, if you're a long-time listener. Uh, thanks for being that, if you're that, by the way. Uh, and also, I, I wanted to make sure uh, that you're aware that, yes, I know, uh, the, the N64 was not the first console controller with, uh, with you know, trigger shoulder buttons. I, I, I know, I know. So, with the entrance to that particular uh, esoteric rabbit hole being mapped, please enjoy my conversation with Aaron Robinson. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I uh, I like your game a whole lot. Yay! Thank you. It took a lot of work. <laughs> I clearly, obviously. I mean, just just the visuals alone. You know, just the the amount of love and detail that was put into that is immediately evident. Thank so you. Uh, so I'm yeah, glad. it's 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 obvious that a lot of effort went into it. Yeah, I'm so glad. I mean, the story with the characters. I had uh, the script written at pretty much fall of 2013 i recorded most of the audio then with the actors um and then pretty much all of 2014 i was working on those animations and i was working on them up until the game shipped pretty much so like 13 months to do like the half hour of voice animation that you see in the game so yeah it was maybe more work than i thought it would be but i just it, i wanted to do justice to the story and it included some things i hadn't thought of which included like oh i should probably lip sync them you know and i I should probably um, have a script that actually controls the camera, so we have panning and cuts and zooming in. And these are things that I didn't, you know, quite think about when I designed the story. Um, but it certainly it, it seems to have worked out. So yeah. 
Yeah, and in, and it's it's quite a story. Um, so I'll sort of leave it to you how much you you want to spoil or not spoil sure. uh, as regards the story, because I really enjoyed uh, sort of discovering the the finer points to myself and the sort of, sort of the layer on layer of of tragedy. Sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, I liked it a lot, but but yeah, I mean, if anything you want to talk about, obviously that's up to you. It's it's your it's your story, right? Oh yeah. Um, Should I do that now? Uh, if you want, <laughs> well. we we dove right in, which is fine by me. But yeah, I mean, so 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 l- let's start with this. Maybe if you were speaking to someone, as you are, because this is the internet, you know, all the time, who might be interested in Gravity Ghost. Uh, we haven't said the name of the game yet. Uh, if you were if, if you were talking to someone who might be interested in Gravity Ghost but currently knew nothing about it, story wise, gameplay wise, etc., how would you sort of describe it? Uh, I'd say it's a physics game where you use the gravity of two dimensional planets to fling yourself through the sky, uh, and there's no killing and no dying, no way to fail. Just just a general understanding of orbital mechanics will get you there, and if not that, then a lot of happy hopping around. Um, yeah, it's it's a good game. It's um, like you can beat it probably between three and four hours. So it's a good game if you're um, trying to relax and unwind. You know, people say it's a very zen experience. We have the same music guy who did uh, the songs from FTL. So it's got a very melancholy space sort of feeling to it, which is something I, I quite love in films. So I tried to draw a little bit from that, I think, in the inspiration for the game. Um, and it's it's also two for one forever. And the reason I did that is because I want you to take your second copy of the game and give it to somebody in your life who doesn't play many video games, just to try to show them like, look, they're not, you know, even if you don't like any other games you played, you might like this one because it's 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 easy to pick up and play. You know, you can you can run and jump. That's pretty much it. Um, but it's still tricky to master, and it's still pretty, I think, pretty rewarding, you know, for the time you put in. So that's my pitch. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good pitch. It's it's open ended too. I dare say. I mean, I got through pretty much all of the game with just like you know, kind of like literally audibly saying that's cool. You know, every time I got a new ability, but I mostly got through it just like with the the movement abilities, the you know the the incorporate the you know becoming incorporeal uh, and oh, yeah. the, the dashing in midair and the double jump and all that stuff. Hmm. I got the feeling as I finished it up, and I got all ninety four stars. I was slightly disappointed there were not one hundred and twenty stars since that's video games oh, own sacred geometry, right? But one thing I do want to say is I got that you know in terms of open endedness. I got the sense that I could have used the terraform ability a lot more than I did. Um, I used kind of the, the I turned planets into water uh, when when necessary, and I, I messed with the air thing a little bit because the bouncy ones were fun. But I didn't use the other ones much except when I was actually required to. So sure. I, I got the sense that maybe I could have done a playthrough that was way less focused on acrobatics and way more focused on, uh, on terraforming and transformation. And so one thing that I would really like to have in the game for version 1.1, 1. 1, um, you know, end of February, we think, is uh, I'd like to have a Steam achievement for beating the game without using any of the geometric power-ups. Um, we call those heartless runs, you know, because the, the geoms come from the heart levels. Um, we had our testers play the game, like, you know, can you play it without getting those? And, and the game is a lot trickier, and you use the terraforming a lot more for that. So I think that would be a really cool way to approach the problem, especially, you know, in like the repulsor levels, the fire is really powerful. Um, mm-hmm. You want to try to neutralize that however you can. So yeah, if you want your extra challenge, I would suggest that or, or wait until we, I still don't know if we're going to be able to make that achievement happen, but I would really like to. So. I, I may try it anyway. Achievement hunting in general. I mean, I, I got, like I said, I got all the stars, but I think I have probably less than half of the achievements because a lot of them are for, you know, again, like making a certain number of terraformed planets that I didn't yeah. even mess with, you know? Yeah, yeah. That was my way to try to subtly encourage people to terraform more, you know, because as a designer, I'm pretty aware of like what the cool things are with each planet. And I didn't really want to spell it out too much. So I just wanted to encourage people to just try it and see what came out of it. One of the things I really like, for instance, is like making bouncy planets and then using heavy mode in combination with that. So you can kind of Mm. use it like puffing on a swing set almost where you can like go really heavy and then have it puff you up really high and then come down really heavy from there and go up even higher. It's like you can do it in layers, um, but you have to have pretty exact timing for that. So there's kind of depth like hidden in the game that I didn't really want to strictly spell out because I thought it would be cool if people, if I left people to discover things as much as possible, pretty much. I mean, you saw saw in the game, like I never told you what the planets did. I tried to only spell out the rules of the game, like get the star to open the door, but I never said anything like this is an ice planet. Ice planets are slippery because I figured it'll be more fun if you just figure it out. 
Yeah, Winter, I actually, uh, the last episode of this that I did, I did with uh, Zach Barth, who uh, made Infinifactory and Space Chem and a bunch of those. And he talked about how if you give players a wall of text, uh, most players won't read it. But if you give players a little bit of text, just a little bit of pithy, you know, like it's dangerous to go alone, take this kind of stuff, they can't help but read it. And it seems to me that's how Gravity Ghost uses text. Uh, There's there's like the explanation. Whenever whenever you do get a heart power, it gives you just sort of a, an, an almost like... I don't know, vaguely haiku paced or, or rhythmed uh, explanation of what it does, you know? Thank you. We really tried to pare it down and to make the text seem like part of the world, not just have it overlaid on the screen. Uh, I've, so. I've noticed a huge number of the screenshots people post on Twitter and stuff involve the, you know, like the, the, the statement that uh, you can't terraform if your hair is too short. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see Anthony Birch posted that? I did, yeah. It's <laughs> funny. He's like, girl, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what hair is for. I didn't realize it. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm such a straight guy. I guess I, I, I just, I, I didn't know. We use it for terraforming, uh, didn't you know? I, I'm always willing to learn. Is the thing. So you know, I'm constantly amazed. So I watched, you know, hundreds of people play test this game over the course of its development. Um, and I'm always amazed when it's like a grown man who turns around and says to me, "I love how long and beautiful my hair is." Like, who, <laughs> who knew that was a power fantasy that was just like waiting to be tapped into? Not me. So I really do love how kind of unabashedly uh, girly, I guess girly may be the wrong word, and let's maybe talk about what the right word is, but, yeah. but the, the aesthetic, right? That you, you collect flowers, it makes your hair grow long. Like there's none of that stuff is winking at all. It's just it's just part of the aesthetic of the game. Yeah. And it is a power fantasy, but it's a power fantasy that works in a a rather different way than, than power fantasies in, in video games tend to work. And I think she's also got a lot of things that are something very cool that a child would like. You know, she has a treasure box mm-hmm. with the cool butterfly wing and the you know the things she collects in the woods and i certainly did a lot of those as a kid so that comes straight from my own life you know we had a ravine in our backyard just like calvin from calvin and Hobbes. like that that was my whole childhood was reading that and thinking like yeah this is it spring summer fall winter everything had its own special thing you could do in that season so yeah i very much picked the time of year to be the end of fall when it's kind of this bleak you know everything is going Going into winter, but it's not snowy yet. The trees are all bare, and it's just kind of depressing and gray. So I'm maybe you notice explicitly, but all the all the flashbacks are gray in the background, and only the people are in color. The people and important items, yeah. And that's like it's kind of funny because it really, if you look at a landscape, at least you know, like in that kind of northern climate, if you look at a landscape in the fall, it mostly is grayscale. You know, like it's not that far off from reality to say this is what things look like. So it's always I always found, like, specifically, like, November a very difficult time of the year, just because it's so cold and miserable and slushy, dark. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I the, the the whole winter, the whole concept of the world could become grayscale was definitely new to me. I mean, I suppose I'd seen it, but I'd seen it in the context of wildfires uh, more, oh, than, oh. more than seasons, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the the whole idea of that cyclical thing and like November being distinct from July is not something I grew up with. Like I saw it in Calvin and Hobbes before I saw it in life in a weird way, you know. Huh. So you read Calvin and Hobbes too? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it's how yeah. <laughs> I, I I think that was actually <laughs> one of the things I first bonded. What kind of a question is that, Aaron? Of course, I read it's Calvin a- and Hobbes. No, no, I didn't mean to be a jerk about it. No, I just, I just meant that that's I, I, a lot of people I know who are interested in stuff, I suppose, right? Like people who are really, really into video games, people who are really, really into comics, books, whatever. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have like a, a story about bonding with somebody or other over reading Calvin and Hobbes at some point, you know? For sure. And I think Iona has notes of that because people don't really get her and she doesn't really click well with other people. And so she seeks out these unusual companions, you know, which include the fox that really ultimately is a wild fox that she kind of projects these feelings onto, you know. Um, and these kind of marginalized people, like the old woman who kind of squats near her family's property and this poacher who yeah, implied that he's, like, not really supposed to be there either. You know, these are the people she seeks out in her life because she can't deal with what's happening with her own family. Yeah, I really liked the treatment of Voy because, like, there's no, there's not a whole lot of anthropomorphization to use the ugliest word for it possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it reminded me a lot of that that principle. I think Matt Groening talked about it one time that animals are way, way funnier when they act like funnier, uh, you know, uh, more touching, more affecting in general, more effective when they act like animals and not, you know, people with furry faces. Right. Exactly. Yes. And uh, it was a conscious decision to make him like not talk. You know, I actually a long time ago, like I've been working on this game for a long time. Um, 
you know, I've tried to like, I knew I wanted a story about a girl in a box. So I started to write it where they're having like witty banter on a little asteroid. And I'm like, this isn't working at all. Oh, that's because, because <laughs> this sucks. Like, <laughs> it's nothing interesting happening. Um, if I can go on a random tangent here. Uh, so my fiance, Steve Swink, worked on an educational game for middle schoolers uh, at Arizona State University. Um, and they did some focus testing of the game. It was supposed to be teaching kids about reading comprehension and then how to do a persuasive writing piece. Uh, so, okay, so it's a little town. You walk around and you meet people and you talk to them. And they had also some talking animals in the game. You know, you go into the woods and talk to some animals about what's going on, current events. And they, like, showed it to kids in the suburbs, and they were like, yeah, this is fine. But they showed it to inner-city kids, and the kids were like, talking animals are for babies. Like, what is this? And so I think that, like, that's something I wouldn't even have thought of, but it's true. Like, a lot of, like, very traditionally, what do you want to call it, European fairy tales have talking animals, and maybe we just accept that as part of literature. But really, if, like, you're just watching TV, all kids' media is talking animals, and, like, you don't see it geared at older people. So I just thought that was a really interesting difference, and that's, like, shows the importance of, like, not assuming that your experience is universal, you know? Yeah, like... that is interesting. Yeah, because I, I, it's funny. I, I just this week uh, read two extremely different, uh, uh, you know, concepts about talking animals. David Sedaris, I think it was, wrote that book of kind of, you know, like modern day fables that had like talking animal characters in it. And he said the reason he did it was that, you know, if you say, you know, uh, you know, like uh, Tony and Jane were, were sitting at breakfast, you want to know everything about Tony and Jane, where they went to school and what they're wearing and stuff. But if you say the fox and the squirrel were at breakfast, you have no questions. You're ready for the story to begin, right? Uh, oh, so there's, okay, there's, that's interesting. Yeah, there's kind of that shorthand there. And, and and the other side of that coin would be the other thing I read was the creator of uh, that show BoJack Horseman. Uh, that uh, yeah. uh, Man, what what was it even on? Was it Netflix or uh, – uh, anyway, uh, that I show. Netflix, yeah. For sure. So, so he, he uh, the creator of the show was saying he wanted to do a, like a relatively serious show about depression and that it's way easier to watch a horse be self-destructive, right? So it's kind <laughs> of like a – I need to watch that show. I didn't realize it was uh, kind of about depression. That sounds super interesting. It starts out not being at all about depression. The first couple episodes are just kind of like the critic with talking animals. It's just kind of like L.A. rather than New York, like a send up of showbiz. And, you know, two or three episodes in, it becomes like maybe the most serious narrative about depression I've ever seen on TV. Like it's it's pretty well really. Done. Yeah, that's, that's high praise. Wow. It's, uh, I mean, it, it rang true for me, have, having, uh, you know, having been uh, through the mill with more anxiety than depression on my side, if, if we're going to get yeah. into it. But, uh, yeah. but, but, it, <laughs> but it definitely, it, there were recognizable patterns of, of not good uh, behavior there. And it, like, it, it, again, it rang pretty true. So recommend it. Wow. Yeah, I'll check it out for sure. But yeah, so, so talking animals are a useful vehicle, but I think they wouldn't yes. fit into the world you were trying to make for Gravity yeah. Best. I think, I think yeah. that would have been they distracting. Up, they show up, well, they show up as the Guardians is kind of the interesting thing. For sure, but uh, those are not merely talking animals, right? They're heightened. No. They, they 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 play a, a different sort of psychological part in Iona's life. They're 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 not merely the fox talking, you know. Right. Exactly. Yes. They're, we don't have to get into it, but I had originally written a couple of lines for like the fox guardian, and I'm like, no, that's a wild animal. It's not going to talk. I'm I loved loved that the fox guardian didn't talk. I I, yeah. I validate your. I hereby validate your choice. I I tell you Thank that you. I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, if it's supposed to be. You know, she's she didn't really grow up when she was alive, and she's doing so as a ghost. That needed to have an arc for her. And I, I'm so happy people are like picking up on that. You know, that she starts out as plucky, and, and she's actually pretty ungrateful. You know, when she talks to Eddie, the old woman, she's sitting down, and this old woman is fetching tea for them. And I tried to make it look like, you know, here's a woman who like doesn't even move very fast, carrying this giant pot of water, and like here's a 12 year old who won't even get up off her butt to help out because she doesn't think to. You know, so she's still very much, very much a child. Not very, not very aware. So, try to have a, an arc and some some redemption. And think that we're used to the redemption narrative, but not with a child as the helm. You know, the helm. We're used to the redemption narrative. We're used to the coming of age narrative. We're used to the increasingly maybe the arrested development narrative. Not like as in yeah. the show arrested development, but as in like the I idea know. of. You, you skip your adolescence or you don't get to do it on time, so you have to do it later in life or, or, or things yeah. like that. Or you, ha or you have to aggressively try not to do it. But this is kind of all three, and I think that's maybe why, <laughs> for me anyway, it was, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty effective. Thank um, you. It got me, I got to say. The, the ending was, was, pretty, was pretty good. 
You're saying you went to ha- he had to go fu- hug your hug your dog, right? <laughs> I did, indeed. Yeah, I did mention that in an email. I did have to. I was actually hugging my dog the entire time I played the last bit. Where I we, again, no spoilers, but you have to you have to go, you know, tie up some loose ends in the black hole and then and then see where things are gonna go. And uh, and the, the the dog literally at one point looked at me like, "What's going on, dude? You, you <laughs> what's going on with you, man?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whenever whenever a dog gets tired of like being pet before you get tired of petting them, you know something is going on with you emotionally. That is that is. Uh... This is the highest praise I've ever received. <laughs> a, do- I... a dog turned around and was like, "Dude, really? You're just gonna do this all night? You're just gonna pet me?" <laughs> really, really, all these feelings, really? Yeah, that was so. So my dog gave this the best possible review. That's great. Anyway. <laughs> it's interesting. So to, so to jump back uh, a couple of topics, because I think it's really interesting. I am constantly on the hunt for a game that is the right way to introduce people who don't play games to games, because games have come a long way in the last couple of years. Um, I think Lee Alexander just did that really amazing piece about how, you know, it's, it's easy to feel like games have not come as far as they have because game game culture is sort of stuck in 1990, but games themselves have, like, you know, t- taken a, a rocket ride into space, if I may, right? Like, they've gone way, way, way beyond anything they were. And every time I think that I have uh, shown... I think I found the perfect game for somebody who's not into games. There's still just a little bit too much friction, you know, to, to, yeah. to show people. No, I thought it was the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like, I thought it was the like Telltale's games for a while, but there's still too much like adventure game crap in them for people to really get into it if they just want the story. I, I thought it was Portal, but Portal is way too physicsy, and people get motion sick. It's true. Um, Gravity Ghost is a strong contender, I must say. Thank you. Well, you should give it a shot, and let me let me know how it goes because you know that was very much my goal with this: that people who didn't play games could just pick it up and then get into it without feeling like the game. It wasn't for them because there are a lot of conventions of games that I don't even think most people think about that are quite alienating. Um, one is the idea that when you collect something, it goes into a menu somewhere that you need to then check later and access and go to a verb menu to like use that item. And that's the reason that in Gravity Ghost, when you collect something, it hangs around you, like in your hair or next to you, and it'll just follow you around like as a physical object until you take it to where it needs to go. Um, so I tried not to, not like, to interrupt, but I, I love the I may have overcommitted achievement for, <laughs> for having everything following you at once. That's that's awesome. <laughs> How many things is that? It's fourteen animals and seven planets, so yeah, twenty-one, I guess. Twenty-one it's things. A, it's a significant number of things, and yeah. I did. I mean, I had long, beautiful hair, so there would have been room. It would have looked fine, but yeah, that's kind of funny. I thought that people might just like to try that, and it's trickier than you might think initially because you have to not touch any of the skeletons, which gets a little little hairy. Like, there's not really a fail state in the game, but I think. Trying to avoid the skeletons is the closest thing you would probably get to like, oh no, don't step in the lava. <laughs> sure. No, but that, that is like a little kid thing of like, you know, it's it's not actually harmful, but we're going to decide the floor is hot lava, yeah, which is kind of exactly. cool. Like it. Yeah. yeah which nice. is what a speed run is fundamentally, right? Like it's, okay. it's adding restrictions in a way that you find interesting. Yeah. The speed running thing makes me kind of wish that I put the immaterial power up a little earlier in the game. I mean, I like where it sits now, and these are all, you know, like they say, art is never really finished, it's only abandoned, but I like it a lot, and it used to be one of the first ones you got, like, years ago when I first started making the game. That was actually a bug that we had once, where you'd start going through the planets, and I'm like, I like this, let's put it in as a power-up. Hmm. <laughs> so my, my program was like, okay. Um, but yeah, it makes it, some people, uh, when that was early on, used it as their primary strategy for getting around, if you can believe that. So that was really cool. And I, I can absolutely of... believe that. I think I would have used probably both heaviness and gliding much less if I'd gotten immateriality. Is that with the proper sure. form? Uh, yeah. Earlier on. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a way for me to do that. Maybe. One thing I do want to talk about is difficulty. Because uh, I thought difficulty in Gravity Ghost is really interesting, especially as regards it being a game that, that could be for everyone or is intended for people who do not play games as well as people who do. Um, I thought, and this is, I don't consider this a spoiler, but I thought it was fascinating, um, how the last, uh, world or the last constellation was not really that hard. Um, it was, it was very much like, not that it was a total gimme, like there were definitely interesting things to think about and do and have to, you know, there were interesting ways of moving through the, 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 the physical spaces that were different than, than, uh, than anything you'd seen before. But it's really not like, it, it's not like it's the culmination of all your skills. It's more like... Uh, it's it's more like what you would do in traditional story structure if you're building into a big conclusion. You're giving like a moment of like anticipation and and, and kind of respite, but kind of tension and all that. It was it was a, it was a choice that seemed to me to be more about building something emotionally 
than, you know, giving people the, you know, the 50-hour engagement with a robust system right. or whatever, the kind of the game-as-product right. thing that most games would be tempted to do. Oh, thank you. No, I'm happy you liked it. And it was kind of a big decision because I had been spooling up, like, you're getting all these abilities here, all the strengths you have, and then you get to a level where the planets are not very dense at all, and all of a sudden you're, like, too strong. All of a sudden the way you normally move is too fast and you just go flying away from the planet. And so you need to like slow down and think more about what you're doing. And it was supposed to, you know, I, um, people have their own interpretations of what happens in the game. And I really don't want to like take that away, you know? Um, but certainly it's a much more dreamy landscape than the previous backgrounds in the game. It's a lot more surreal. And I think some of the literalness of the better space starts to break down a little bit. So that's part of the reason I chose it there, but yeah, let's, I guess that's all I'll say about it. I think yeah. yeah, I think it's a, again without getting too specific, we could say that it's uh, for you know for anybody anybody listening, and I know there's a lot of game theory nerds who listen to this, so so a few of you have uh, for anybody who's read uh, Ian Bogost's How to Do Things with Video Games, the Last World sort of tends a little bit more toward what Bogost would call uh, like proceduralism, like a, a little bit more like Braid or like uh, like like the Marriage or like uh, like uh, like Jason Rohr's thing. Uh, oh god, what's it called? The one where you go through Passage. life or whatever. Passage, there you go. Uh, it's a little bit more like that, where it's like surrealist chunks of the real world rearranged in a way that is meaningful and interact with the system in a way that makes you think about what those objects like mean or indicate. I didn't realize there was like a word for it. Damn it, Ian Bogus. Uh, Why do you gotta be so much smarter than the rest of us? <laughs> right? It's yeah, well because he, he's the only one who's, you know, he's he's like a humanities guy and he is literate in code, right? More of us need to uh, more of us need to get serious about that. I try, but you know, stupidity and bogus. I found, yeah, speaking of literature, like I, I took some English courses in college, which was kind of unusual because I was a psychology science major, but I really wanted to keep up with my humanities, and so I took a couple of English lit courses and I found a paper that I wrote uh where I spec where I talk about Wordsworth Wordsworth's idea that social vanity dulls the senses and makes us stupid. And I like, I'm reading it, I'm reading it, and I'm like looking at the professor's name, and it's, I'm like, I clearly wrote this. It's, I don't remember this guy. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, Twitter's rotted my brain. <laughs> <laughs> David Carr was right. Oh no. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh god. It's like, I couldn't even begin to explain the idea I just had in Twitter form. You know what I mean? It's like this feeling sure. I have, like, oh. This this part of me that cared very deeply about English literature that I don't really interact with much anymore. Most of what I read actually is uh, nonfiction. I read a lot about the history of objects, um, including the history of textiles and the history of engineering and the way those things came to be and how they proliferated across the world. I love that stuff. I don't know why. It's just like my chill out thing I like to do because so much of my life is in front of a screen, you know, if you make video games for a living, you need to find things that are not looking into a screen to like do in your life. Otherwise, you will go insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's my my for a while, uh, and we found other like escapes now. But my wife and I ran a little Etsy shop for a while where we would just like make make paper craft stuff. And it was because oh, like we craft. we were both sitting in front of screens all day. Yeah, she she yeah. made like uh, these paper craft flowers, like a bouquet of flowers out of books that meant nice. stuff to us for our wedding. And then oh, like sweet. a friend of yeah, it was it was cool. It, it was really really cool. It was very personal. And a friend of ours took pictures, and they ended up on some style blogs, and then people started wanting them. So we would just like whenever we were at home together, we would just be making these flowers for a while. And That's eventually, fun. it got kind of onerous to be making them all the time, right? Which is why we stopped. Right. But for a while, it was just really cool because we were both very much you know in our heads or in front of screens or whatever all day, and it was really really yeah. cool to just work with like glue and paper and wire. You know, like the the physicality yeah, sure. of making things. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I'd love to get more back into that stuff. Sometimes even like from working all day, your wrists get really sore and you don't want to be making stuff, which is really too bad. Maybe now that Gravity Ghost is out, I can have a little bit more time. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, the game is out now, so I actually don't feel like the drum of the Reaper behind my head all the time. Uh, but like, I still have a lot to do. I have a lot of emails to stay up on. People, you know, people like yourself like to know what I'm up to and I try to, try to, you know, reach out when I can. No, and like I say, I really appreciate you being here. Because again, just I, I there's there's a certain uh, breed of video game uh, uh, studies person or, or just, just general art nerd who I think would really, really like the game but may not have heard about it. Thank you. Yeah, I did, you know, I, I did my two-for-one thing because I thought, I thought the same thing. I, I thought it would be a, a good game for people who don't necessarily usually 
find video games all that compelling. And I just don't, I didn't know how to reach those people. So I thought, well, if I just tell people to give that extra copy for free to somebody in their life, it might reach them. You know, that's my plan. I'll let you know how my experiment goes. I'm going to give it to somebody who okay. doesn't even have Steam installed currently and see, see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, uh, let me just find this quote the other day. I copied it down because it was so amazing. Okay. So I've sent review copies out of the game to many people and I gave out two copies because it's the, you know, oh, it's the two for one thing. You know, even, even you, the reviewer, you know, here's an extra copy for you. Uh, and somebody wrote back to me, thanks so much for the review keys. I gave my spare one to my girlfriend who has no interest in gaming at all, but she found the game extremely charming and captivating, which honestly surprised me coming from her. I was like, wow, that's perfect. My plan worked. This is one instance. <laughs> I, mean, I just pictured you steepling your fingers. And yeah, like, yes, yes. Like, yeah, the game yeah. only came out on Monday, right? So I don't even know if my plan worked yet. But like that was the first kind of evidence I had that like, oh, this might actually work. Hooray! <laughs> so the plan is it's two for one forever. It's two for one if you if you uh, buy it right now, which I encourage people to consider doing because it's really good. It's two for one if you buy it on Steam sale later. It's yep. it's just two. It's just two for one period. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. That's okay. very very cool. I'm trying to think if any other game has done that. Did maybe Frozen Synapse do that? Or was that a limited time thing for them? I can't actually remember. I don't remember. know. And I remember, like, you could buy Left 4 Dead in a pack of four, but it wasn't, like, four for one or anything. For sure. Yeah, it's usually, like, it's, like, four for the price of three or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I also hope, again, just going back to the the art nerd crowd for a little bit, like, it's I think it's, it's a game that sits in an interesting space uh, visually, because it is just so you know, so, so fucking pretty to look at that it, it could be like, it, it would be very comfortable in a gallery space in a certain way. Uh, but it's say. not, I don't think just to go back to Ian Bogos for a second, he talks about art games, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, all roads lead to Bogos, damn it. Uh, he, one of, one of his other categorizations is art games and he, he kind of defines them. Uh, like he, he's talking about like Cory Archangel stuff at that point, right? Like super Mario clouds and all that. Right, because the thing about that, and and I just want to you know just bring back the Bogos point, is that those are games that are meant to be viewed and contemplated, not played. Okay. They're they're not really. I mean, in the, in the case of Super Mario Clouds, you can't even play it really. Uh, Gravity Ghost is not like that. Gravity Ghost is a game that wants it's tactile, right? Like it wants you to play it. The 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 feeling of maybe this is me psychoanalyzing or whatever, but. Uh, or pop psychoanalyzing, but it seems to me that the, the the tactility of gravity and stuff has something to do with the emotions of the game. It has to do with like the 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 laws of the universe being inevitable, and and you know again no specific spoilers, but the but gravity plays a part in part of what happens in Iona's life, and it, it just it it all seems to me to be of a piece that means more if you've laid hands on it than if you've simply viewed it, even though it's awfully pretty to view. I think that's very fair. I think that's a, a really nice assessment, and I like that. You know, I. I saw another review from Kotaku who, who they said the sacred geometry clearly represents the things that pull us towards and push us away from our own loved ones. And I was like, wow, that's a really a lovely interpretation. I like that quite a lot, you know? And so it's really, really interesting to see what people assume about the game because a lot of people are like, oh, this is clearly this. And I love that because I kind of set it up halfway and then left the rest of it open. So like, what do you think is going on? You know? Um, another thing that I just noticed happening in the game very early on was that like, you can't fight the gravity, right? You're not stronger than the gravity. We tune it that way on purpose. You have to go with the flow. Or if you try to make a jump and you do something, you know, you make a jump, but you don't go where you wanted to. You can try to fight that, which won't help. Or you can try to go with the flow and just try again. You know, it's kind of like life almost. It's like try, try again. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. And it's so, so uh, thank you for kind of bringing that up again. Because you were, you were talking about the, the abstractions that people who don't play games can find alienating about games. And I think the way games tend to treat death is probably the biggest one. And, huh. and Gravity Ghost yeah. eliminates that by eliminating death. I think I think when I sit somebody down to play Super Mario Brothers and I say, look, look how the first screen teaches you all the rules of the game and stuff, they always, mm -hmm. as they're looking at the shell and seeing how it bounces, they get hit by the shell and they go, oh, wait, I'm dead, but I'm back here. And that that's when I lose them, I think, sometimes. Yep. And there are moments, I think that people, and I include myself in this list, people don't like to look foolish, you know, and if... If the game makes them feel foolish, then they're not going to want to continue that. It's not going to be fun, even if you know that eventually there's some depth to the game. Um, you know, and I had this experience over and over again when I was running our booth at, at PAX, the Indie Mega booth in 2013. I was showing, I was standing there with a the controller being like, hey, you want to play this game? And people would kind of eyeball it. And I think the art is very different. It looks kind of like a Van Gogh painting or, or so people tell me. Um, and I'd be like, do you want to play this game? And, and they'd kind of like eyeball it and be like, no, thank you. And be like, there's no way to fail. There's no, no way to screw this up. And they're like, okay, I'll play. You know, like they were kind of aware that people would be watching them if they stopped to play. So there was a lot of, 
yeah, and I think that's where a lot of that comes from. That's just a theory, though. It's just my my hunch. But yeah, even even I mean, the, the game has three different control schemes you can use. You can use the keyboard, you can use the mouse, and you can use the controller. And I will say this: I didn't know how to use a game controller until I started working in the game industry because I grew up on PC games because we never had consoles and my mom didn't allow them in our house. And I found it very alienating that so many games just assumed you knew how to use a controller. If you play a lot of games and every game try to teach you what a controller is to start, that would be very tedious, and I get that. Um, but I also think that there's just not a lot of thought given to tutorials in general and how they will make people feel at each moment in the tutorial, you know? Um, and so it's just, that's where so many people get turned off from this medium that we devote our lives to. It's just, you know, if there's just a little bit more care taken, you know, if there's just a thing at the beginning that's like, have you played the game like this before? Yes or no? You know, I know people don't want to interrupt the experience, but. No, and I'm actually really excited to watch somebody who doesn't play as many games play Gravity Ghost because I feel like yeah. with gaining the abilities, like I feel like because I felt like a coiled spring once I realized I was eventually eventually going to have a use for all four face buttons on my on my oh. Xbox controller or whatever I had, and I, I feel <laughs> like even someone who doesn't who isn't literate in the system and doesn't realize you're probably going to use all four of those buttons would eventually come to that same conclusion. Right, that you finally, you, you have the power to use these buttons because you're used to what the other buttons do, you know? But the, like, like, I didn't even know there were buttons on the back of the controller. I'll say that. I'll say it. Like, I'm like, so I have to push buttons I can't even see? You know, like, that was crazy. <laughs> sure. Like, how am I supposed to know where these are? I can't see where my hand is back there, you know what I mean? It's just, like, not that muscle memory. And I think that, I mean, there was a time when controllers didn't have buttons on the back, right? And that was an evolution of the design to give you kind of right. more more responses. And I get that, like, yeah, pulling the trigger literally feels like pulling a trigger. That's cool. Like, it maps to, like, a shooting mechanic. That's awesome. But, again, this is an evolution. And if you started playing games as, like, a five-year-old, and then the controller evolved along with you growing up, like, of course you're familiar with it. But for people to get into this, like, it's pretty difficult. And I think that's why the Wii was and continues to be extraordinarily successful, you know, because there's nothing about a Wii game that will make you feel stupid. It, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I know a lot of younger uh, uh, people. Like, I, so my, my niece, for example, really, really likes Minecraft, and she plays it on the Xbox for the most part. And I don't know that it would actually occur to her. I haven't. I, I, it just occurs to me I should actually ask her this, like whether she thinks of trigger buttons as triggers. Like, I think if you grew up with Call of Duty or Halo or whatever, it's it's a pretty obvious metaphor. But I think to her, it more has to do with, like, clenching or, like, closeness or intimacy. Because that's, like, the dig mechanic or that's the use mechanic. Or even for, uh, even for okay. me, like, I, the first, I remember, first time I remember a trigger button would, would have been the Z button on an N64 controller. And that was what made right. Mario crouch, right? So it was, yeah. Or it's what made Link lock on. So it's got more to do with maybe, like, focus or closeness than it has uh, to do with shooting uh, the thing, you know? That's interesting. I always feel like I'm holding an N64 controller wrong. It's like three bananas. It's like <laughs> <laughs> right because because there's explicitly like three ways to hold it. Although one of those ways and it was never used. Like you could have one thumb on the 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 D pad and one thumb on the control stick. I think there was maybe one game that did that, but yeah. Yeah, it's all very interesting. I I come from this perspective of somebody who didn't grow up with console games specifically, and so I always assume that people don't know how to use controllers and. Mm. Okay, so going a step further, a couple of years ago, I made a game called PuzzleBots, which came out on Steam, and it was on Big Fish as well, um, which was a casual game portal. Uh, and we wanted to make a, the same thing, a game that was like an adventure game, but was accessible to anybody. Uh, and one thing I learned is that a lot of people who play games on the computer don't know how to use the right mouse button. They don't know how to right-click. It was not part of their computer literacy, and they don't need it to check their email, so they don't know how to do it. Mm. Um, and that was wild, because in a lot of like modern adventure games, um, like right click is look and left click is interact with. We've kind of gone yeah. away from the whole like this verb coin where you can like push, pull, eat, talk, you know, like that's all very old now. We don't do that anymore. Um, but you know, the whole like right click to look at a thing. So we had to like redesign some stuff when we were working on PuzzleBots to make it more accessible. And I think that was all the right decision. So I got my start in the adventure game studio community. And that's an engine you can use to make adventure games. And, you know, I started out making pretty what you'd consider pretty difficult adventure games, very much in the style of the old Sierra games, with like purely inventory puzzles and mm -hmm. really obscure logic, you know, like the code you need for the computer is hidden in the background of the clock and things like that. Sure. Um, and that, you know, that was my game Nanobots that I worked on. And then I just like tried to make that more accessible. So like in Puzzle Bots, you, 
it keeps the same idea, which is that each robot you have is it does a different burn. Basically, you have one robot that picks things up. You have robot one robot that pushes heavy things. You have a robot with a flamethrower that can set things on fire. I thought that was a pretty good compromise as a way to do the verb coin. You know, to have many different actions, you can think about what can this character do rather than mm-hmm. you know. And so actually, I really I really like how it turned out because I introduced the robots very gradually. You start with just the one who can pick things up. He's basically your inventory robot, and then you get the heavy robot, and then. Over the course of this game, it takes you about three or four hours to play. Um, and like the people at the adventure game community, like in that, in that community, they thought the game was really easy, but like an average person who played it, they all loved it because it's like, Oh, I feel so smart solving these puzzles, right? Like there's that experience of like feeling smart and in control is something that like video games are so good at delivering if done right? So I just thought, how do, how do I bring that to more people? There's a puzzle in like the fourth level where all you have to do is pick up a cord and plug in a toaster because the the little robots think that the toaster is a giant robot and they want to like activate it. Uh, and like that was still hard for some people, you know, so you like can't even, you know, the, the game eventually gets a lot harder than that, um, but you have to like carry people along to like show them like to, so they can even understand like what are the affordances of the system. You know, what are the actions and the implications of those actions? You need to give them some practice with that before you jump into anything. I will say, by the way, that there are some tremendously uh, clever and satisfying little puzzle moments in Gravity Ghost. The thing with the telescope, uh, just this little moments that it's not that I like scratched my head for hours and hours or had to take a walk or anything. It was mm-hmm. more just like, I, I looked at it for a minute. I squinted. I, I, I thought, and I went, Oh, and I like, I, I, again, like I made an audible noise when I saw <laughs> most of this stuff. So it's, nice. it, it was, yeah, those moments of discovery. I wanted to make as many of those as possible, you know, throughout the course of the game. And I'm really, I'm really happy to hear you say that. Joyful no, I thought it did events. it really well. It reminded me a lot of, uh, I think it was Eric Walpar or somebody from Valve said that they basically thought of Portal 2 uh, primarily as a cleverness simulator, uh, right? Nice. Like it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was supposed to make you feel like you were a super genius um, yeah. and it's and, and make you earn it just enough, you know? And I thought that Gravity yeah. Ghost struck that, that same balance pretty well. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to tell you about a game called Tetropolis that one of my students worked on. He was the sound guy for this game. Um, it's like, it appears to be on Steam Greenlight. Oh, it's greenlit. That's nice. It's very cool. Um, they had tried to do a Kickstarter, but I don't think that worked out for them. But I played a build of it, and you're playing as a Tetris precious piece. It's kind of like lost. They call it a Tetroidvania, so you're like moving through these different worlds as a Tetris piece, rolling along, rolling along. You pick up other little cubes that join you, and it changes your shape a little bit. So, you know, every Tetris piece has four blocks, right? Um, and you can turn yourself into the long piece to do high jumps, and you can turn into the the square piece to go heavy. So it was a really cute idea, and it's, it's pretty well done. It had some problems, but I won't get into those. Um, but then they had this meta idea that the levels that you're moving through, you can get to like a special room and start shifting them around. And literally what you can do is that uh, you think of each room as like a system of grids. You can pick them up and rotate them just like they're Tetris pieces. So like four rooms are stuck together always. You can pick that up and rotate it 90 degrees and then change it. And then you can go back and traverse it that way. And it's a crazy ambitious idea. And it's like really cool in concept, but the version I played, they hadn't properly introduced that. They hadn't shown me, the player, why that would be cool. Mm. It's like, why is it cool that I can take the room I just stood in and turn it 90 degrees? Why would I want to do that? What, what are the affordances of this new system you've developed? Because clearly it's a crazy ambitious feature that you spent probably months implementing. So. What is cool about this? And it's your job as a designer to teach me that right away. For sure, because you know? if you're if you've if you've unlocked half of the mansion in Resident Evil or whatever, and you can then rotate one of the rooms ninety degrees, the the utility of that is super obvious, right? And 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 maybe mind blowing. Oh, I've never actually played that. What happens if you do that? Oh no, so 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 you can't rotate anything, right? But it's it's just a so it's it's a game that's really really heavy on. Uh, so it's a, you're within a finite space. It's all within one sort of like you know scary mansion. But it's it's all about backtracking and finding the safest routes where you're going to get the least harried by zombies at various times. So it's all about like slowly unfolding rooms and oh I wish I could get through that door and I could get to this whole uh, new wing if only I could get there. So if you had the ability uh, to rotate a chunk of it, it would be mind blowing. Right. So I guess what I mean is if you had a space that was hard to traverse or a, or a locked door that was 
was bedeviling you. Uh, and maybe Resident Evil is an overcomplicated example. Maybe just like The Legend sure. of Zelda or The Binding of Isaac, where rooms right. are just like interlocula- interlocking, inter- interlocking. I don't know. Interlocking is probably the word. Sure, interlocutifying uh, squares or whatever. That you know that makes it obvious. But without that context, as you say, it's it's merely a time-consuming thing to build. Yeah, and so what this game wanted you to do was take apart the whole level and then rearrange it so that you had a clear path to the exit room, which was across mm. the map. And so that, they had, it was too much. It was too much puzzle. It's like, I have to arrange Tetris pieces so that the doors connect to each other so I have a continuous pathway from the room that I'm standing in to the final room. It's like, I wrote back to them, I'm like, guys, the first thing you need to have people do is to take one section of rooms, rotate it 90 degrees, place it, and then have a clear tunnel to walk through. You need to show me that baby steps, mm-hmm. tiny baby steps. Like, just because it's cool to you, the designer, and you understand what's cool about it, doesn't, you need to teach that. And really, a game should be teaching you the whole time. You know, you should be learning the whole time because that's where the fun comes from. Yeah, well, you were so talking about. Me. I was going to say, you were talking about tutorials earlier, and, you know, mm-hmm. I, 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 to a certain degree, a good game is a very a very high percentage of a good game, I should say, or a, or a good game with a novel concept is going to be tutorial, uh, just, yeah. just done in a way that's engaging. Most people, as soon as they experience, like, a couple of frustrations, will just quit a game, and that's it. You can't win them back after that, and that's 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 your fault. <laughs> like, it's a, <laughs> sure. okay, so video game industry is a hard business, you know? It's hard to make a game that people care about, and... I encounter this a little bit. There's this belief, like, if you work really hard on something and you think it's cool that you're kind of entitled to to people's adulation, I guess. You know, it's like, I worked really hard on this. How come nobody's buying it? It's like, oh, I heard it so, I heard it so well once by a guy named Anthony Carboni, who used to do, like, game reviews and he works on TV. He's like, everybody works hard. It's called making a living. Like, <laughs> you're not special for having put your time into this thing and you're not special for having you know, suffered. I'm sorry. Like, it's so harsh, but like, that's the reality. Like you need to grab people right away with what's cool about your idea or they will just quit. And that's it. Yeah. And especially like in this day and age, people are busy. They don't want to like disconnect from their life and their cell phone and everything to play a game that you made. Like you need to be the most interesting thing that is in their life in order for you to be a successful video game. Like, (laughs) This sounds so harsh when I say it out loud, but like it's very much my philosophy. I think you're right, though. I think when you, I think if you you try and blame a lack of engagement on the players' part, or you try to game, you try to you try to blame this or that, as opposed to just saying I am failing to be more interesting than Facebook. You know, if it's a mobile game, mm-hmm. or I'm failing to be more interesting than than whatever. <laughs> if it's a you know, if it's not a mobile game, I think yeah, right. That's that's the designer's job, and that's not to say it's an easy job. And it's, oh, and it's especially I, frustrating as somebody who, like, writes about games and talks about them when you find a game that has those really interesting kernels but does a terrible job of teaching people so yeah. that it's very, very hard to recommend, you know? Yes, yes. And I teach a lot of college students also. I like to teach beginner college students who are just starting out with game design because I like to see what they come up with and I like to help them focus those ideas. Um, and a lot of the time I try to tell them, like, you know, what you're doing won't make any sense to the players who play it. And they're like, yeah, no, totally. It's totally easy. Like the game I'm thinking of specifically, um, you could pick up a colored orb and that would make everything in the world that was that color kind of go transparent and then you could walk through it. Um, so they made a big open level and I was like, okay, I don't know if people will get it. They're like, but it's so simple. You pick up the colored orb, you carry it and you can walk through those walls. I'm like, okay, well, just play test then. And my rule with play testing is like, you're not allowed to talk. Because you're not going to be standing in the room with somebody when they're buying your game and they're playing it. So you're not allowed to talk. So they just sat there for like, I don't know, half an hour or an hour. Four or five different people came through. Couldn't figure out even that you could pick up these things. Right? <laughs> sure. Just wandering around. They kind of they get their body language says they're really uncomfortable. They're like, can I stop playing now? Like, I haven't. Is this done? Like, <laughs> and so I'm like, guys, here's what you do. Okay. You create one level with one red wall you can't walk through. You might even want to create a level that has just a door to show you, like, this is what a door is in your game and what it looks like, you know, because a colored wall disappearing is not a very intuitive thing, actually. Even though it's simple, it's not intuitive. So, like, yeah, important bright text that says, click on this orb to pick it up, and then a point of view that the camera is pointing at the wall when this happens so you see that the wall disappears or something, right? 
So now you have camera code to worry about. You have to make sure that the player, when they approach the thing, is at the right angle. Otherwise, you're not going to understand what happens. And just all these little things that they don't even think about because just because the rules of something are simple doesn't mean that they're going to make sense to people. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, so, yeah. so one example again, it's somebody I talked to on the podcast recently was Dan Teasdale uh, from uh, No Goblin. They just put out Roundabout, which is uh, I don't okay. know if you played it. Uh, <laughs> no. As you've been working on a game, it's very likely you haven't, right? Fair enough. I have not. <laughs> I, I haven't worked. <laughs> it's great. So it's uh, it's 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 a two person studio. It's him and Panzer, uh, the uh, the just general all purpose artist, and it's really cool. But it's it, this, the premise of the game is you are driving a constantly rotating stretch limousine, um, and it's really really. <laughs> Right? So already it's funny. It's charming yeah. as hell because like so half the game is you doing that in kind of a big open uh world and all of the all of the story bits and character bits are full motion video, like with intentionally dodgy production values, wow. like kinda seventy style. I love it's, it's really, really cool. Uh but but so it I, I bring it up because it's a really good example of like so a constantly rotating stretch limousine immediately is recognizable as a physical thing and immediately makes no physical sense. Right. So like it's really, really easy to sort of grok what's happening, but it's not at all easy to figure out like, okay, well it's gonna be really easy to go around corners and it's gonna be really hard to go straight through narrow spaces. Sure, okay. So it, it does the game does a really good job. Like it literally starts with you taking your your driving test, right? Which is a, a clever enough conceit. But you, you know, at at first you're the things you could bump into are cones and there's low stakes and it slowly introduces little fences that, that are that really are kind cool. of like loud and ugly for you to knock over but again low stakes really and then then it dials you up to a situation where you actually have to navigate around things or or else blow up you that know? sounds like a good game to me that sounds like they really thought about the progression a lot what what did you it's, say it was called it's called roundabout okay i'll check it out is it out yet it is out yeah okay I know it's out on PC. I know it's coming out on PS4 and X, X, Xbone and, and Vita and all that. But I think for now it's just uh, Steam in the Humble Store. Wow, it's got uh, four and a half stars on Steam. That's awesome. It's uh, it's not a game that I knew I'd always wanted, but apparently it's a game I'd always wanted. That's awesome. I'm gonna have it's to get cool. that. So, uh, did 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 making games come before teaching for you, or did you start teaching and then as you started to make games begin to teach game design? Making games came first. Uh, I've been doing it as a hobby since I was about 18 in my college dorm, probably procrastinating. I don't actually remember why I got started. I just knew that I didn't like any of the games that were coming out. So I thought, like, I'm just going to make my own. <laughs> that's going to be a fun challenge. I'll just make that happen. So, so that's what I did. And so I joined the industry officially in 2008, um, shortly after I graduated university. And then... Um, a couple of years later, I was trying to learn how to program, and um, my fiance Steve Swink um, said, "Like you should just pick an easy game like Asteroids and try to make something like that." And so I did. That eventually became Gravity Ghosts, by the way, mm. <laughs> through many years and iterations. And I learned. I can absolutely again. see that. I can absolutely see that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, over the course of that, I started to learn to code. But actually, it was only like seven or so months after I started learning to code that I started teaching because. I think it actually helped me a lot because I remembered how frustrating it was to be just starting. And when you're learning to code, it really feels like trying to jump without legs. You have, it's just, it's like learning a new language. It's, that's not even accurate because it's like learning a new language that's going to make you feel stupid and incorrect all the time. And so I wanted to be there at that moment. People experience extreme frustration. Like they try to write a line of code and it doesn't compile. You get a big red error and you have no idea what the error is. It's like, I thought I knew how to do this, but now I'm getting a big red error. And, so I would step in and be like, you just forgot a semicolon at the end of your sentence. To have somebody there to like shorten that frustration cycle is really, really rewarding for me and I think really valuable for them. And so I've just been teaching pretty much almost as long as I've been learning how to code, which was like, that was 2010, something like that. Now that's huge because it, it is it's like learning a language where the native speakers in this case computers are not going to be polite at all about when you're wrong uh, the slightest no, exactly. grammatical error renders renders you unintelligible and you can't go to a restaurant and practice casually. No, it's true. Um, and you know, like I believe, yes, you can teach yourself a lot of things on the internet these days. Code, the very beginning code, I don't think is one of them because there's so many different ways you can get it wrong. Like starting students don't even understand that certain things are case sensitive. That's not a very normal thing mm. to have to understand. If you're not used to talking to computers, you know, why would you be? You know, you can send a text message and have all the letters be lowercase and people will be able to understand you just fine. And so they don't think to look for that in their mistakes and stuff. And so it's just, just especially the first two weeks. And like the courses I teach are only two or three weeks long. They make an entire video game in Unity in C Sharp. I'm really proud of the fact that every student I've had has finished their game in that amount of time. Um, wow, that is that is damn impressive, by the way. 
Thank you. Yeah, so I like to help people focus their ideas and like get rid of the stuff that's too ambitious. A lot of kids come to a game design program thinking they're going to design a game just like the games they like, and the games that they like are made by hundreds of people over many years. And so having a course that's only that short means that they know that they're not going to create their dream game in a way that's very freeing for them. They can just pick an idea and try to make it happen, and then it's a very low-stake situation. But Sure. Anyway, kind of got on a random tangent. Learning to code is very frustrating. You need a, you need a human being there. One other thing I wanted to say is, like, I, I, I wonder if that's going to change. with Because, you know, I mentioned my niece who loves Minecraft, and she loves Minecraft, like, a lot, a lot. Uh, loves survival mm-hmm. mode, loves loves uh, creative mode, loves everything. And I wonder if the games that pe- what you know, the game that so many kids are growing up with these days was begun, if not completed, by one person, you know? Mm-hmm. I wonder how much that is going to change people's perception because because exactly as you say, when someone shows up and they want to make, you know, whatever game they like, if they like Assassin's Creed or if they like Portal or if they like, you know, or, or, or any of those things, that's going to be out of your reach as your first game. Um, yeah. I mean, even Minecraft is obviously well, 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 well out of your reach for your first game, but something that looks or yeah. feels more like Minecraft than Assassin's Creed probably is a, a more useful or a more realistic headspace to be in, potentially. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the indie indies affects the way that kids perceive video games. I mean, so I have students who come up to me, right, and they're like, I want to I want to go indie. I want to make indie games. I don't want to work for a company. And I, I say, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't do it. Um, it's Well, that's it's the really same hard. in any art, though, right? That's the, Thus yeah. goes the conversation with all teachers in any creative medium since the beginning of time, yeah. right? Yeah. Did I, there's a really good article, sorry, a really good interview with a Don Cheadle on, I think it's like inside the actor studio, that one, where it's mm-hmm. like people constantly ask him, like, what can I do to like become an actor? And he says, don't do it. <laughs> really hard. If you're like a, a 35-year-old white guy, you'll have the easiest time, but that's not easy. <laughs> yeah. You know? Charles, even Doesn't Charles Bukowski have that poem where he goes through this litany of ridiculous things you can do, you know, some of them self-destructive, and then at the end he goes, but don't write poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so... If you care enough about making a new type of video game that you are willing to like forgo a lot of life's luxuries for years at a time, then you don't need me to tell you to do it, right? That's going to come from you. It's not going to come from my encouragement. It's got to come from inside, you know? Yeah. I can tell you about the realities of independent game development, right? But most people aren't going to want to hear about like, you should probably not have a smartphone because it costs too much money. You should not own a car because you'll save more money every month. You know, lots of people aren't going to want to hear that stuff. So is there anything you feel we've left out as regards, I mean, obviously there's a lot we've left out as regards Gravity Ghost, uh, some of it intentionally. Um, but is yeah, there anything you, I, you feel like as far as, I mean, you've pitched it and I don't want to make you pitch it again, but but are there, is, is there is there stuff you feel that we've missed? I feel really, really happy about how the reviews have gone. And it's really exciting to watch this all happen as people find different aspects of the game that they really like and strikes a different chord with different people. You know, like, I'm looking at this review on GameSpot. My dad actually sent it to me. I, I had seen it already, but he's like, Sweetie, did you see this one? And like, he's watching for reviews, too. Oh, that's um, Yeah. Uh, but this, okay, this is a review on GameSpot. Right, GameSpot. It's a gaming blog. It starts out, Childhood is terrifying. Childhood is beautiful. Childhood is full of wonder. And childhood is marked by the continual loss of innocence that comes with each new year. Noting that the unexplored experiences, um, which are exciting and enticing, could kill you as part of growing up, as is learning that there are consequences to all of our actions, no matter how pure our intentions might be. These are, those are heavy themes for adults to handle, let alone children. But they rest at the core of the delightful platform of Gravity Ghosts. Like, what other game on GameSpot? Holy <laughs> shit, that's on GameSpot? Yeah! <laughs> wow! I'm like... Am I, am I pitching myself? Like, is this real? <laughs> games have, for the last several years, been out ahead of a lot of games writing, and I, I, I think I think th- there's been a little bit of a round uh, round peg square hole problem with 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 sites like GameSpot figuring out what their descriptive language is for something as interesting and as kind of unique as Gravity Ghost. And and man, what you just said gives me so much hope that they're catching up. What were you saying? That's good. I I was just gonna say, you know. It's hard to also to to write within a game to write for interactivity. That's the thing we're still figuring out. It's still a very new, very new idea that the writing and the story and the gameplay should be 
intertwined, I think. No, and if, you, and if you'd like to come back and discuss it more some other time, I would certainly welcome that. But I, yeah. but I thank you for everything you said. I guess just that's a really good point to end on, which is that if, if GameSpot is now beginning reviews of really interesting indie games with sort of elegies to the, 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 the inevitable beautiful but terrifying loss of innocence that comes with growing up like if that's if that's the level GameSpot's operating on there's hope i just can't believe like, it i know i'm floored i'm so so happy like especially i i don't know i tweeted earlier today but it's like when you have to spend four christmases with your family saying yes i'm still working on the game to like have this be the reaction that you get from the public it's just amazing i don't have any words for it it's amazing <laughs> total biscuit liked it like he he calls himself a cynical brit but <laughs> It sound very cynical talking about my game. He just had lots of nice things to say. How oh, it's everything he's looking for in a video game and this and that. And it's like, oh my god, what did I make? <laughs> I don't. I I didn't I didn't realize Total Biscuit had I was gonna say written it up had videoed it up. That's he awesome. I'll, I'll check. Yeah, it's got almost uh, it's got more than a quarter million views now. I'm just like through the looking glass. My life just got really weird. <laughs> that's that's incredible. Yeah. Well, I. I, I will be evangelizing about the game to a, a much smaller audience than Total Biscuits, but one that I know is going to be really excited to hear about. Great. It. So, thank you so much. Yeah, so I, I want thank you one more time for, for taking the time to talk to me, and uh, and I, I love the game, and I look forward to messing with it and achievement hunting. I may even try a speedrun, who knows? Okay. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing whatever you make next, so thank, thank you, you so for, for making stuff. Thank you so much. All right, take care, Drew. You too. Bye. That's the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Aaron Robinson for being here. Gravity Ghost is available on Steam and in the Humble Store. If you buy one copy, you get two copies. Uh, give one to uh, ideally someone who is skeptical about games, but hey, maybe just someone who's skeptical about this kind of game. Uh, maybe maybe some wonderful bridges will be built as a result. You can find out about Aaron's other work uh, at LivelyIvy.com. You can follow her on Twitter at LivelyIvy. You can follow me on Twitter at Drew M. Michaels. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Uh, you can also, of course, uh, terraform episodes of other podcasts into episodes of this podcast. Uh, just make sure that you have a sufficient amount of long, luxurious hair. Truly, while I was recording the intro, it occurred to me that, you know, add, having to add context for people who've been listening for a while is a cool thing, because people have been listening for a while. So, truly, 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 thank you for listening. Follow all of our bloggly exploits, uh, or as many as you find interesting, at etao.wordpress.com. <laughs>